Rabbi Ed Feinstein is senior rabbi of Valley Beth Shalom in Encino, California. I've actually never been there. Has anybody been to that show? Wow. Okay. No, I have to go up there. I will go. If he ever invites me, I probably would go. He serves on the faculty of the Ziegler Rabbinical School of the AJU. Thank you. Well, at least I have a date. The Wexner Heritage Program, the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, and lectures widely across the U.S. He's the author of three books. He uh, was raised in the back of his parents' bakery. Where you heard, well, I've heard that story. In the frontiers of the West San, San Fernando Valley. He graduated with honors from uh, University of California, Santa Cruz. I did not know that. You're a Santa Cruz person. I went to visit there. Uh, University uh, of Judaism, Columbia University Teachers College, and the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. He was ordained a rabbi in 1981. He is currently, though this, I don't know if this is old, so are you still currently completing your doctoral degree? Okay. He is currently completing his doctoral degree at the Jewish Theological Seminary's Davidson School of Jewish Education. Um, it says here that he's blessed with three college-age children, but again, that, is that contemporary? Are they still in college? Okay, post-college children. Uh, he's an engaging lecturer and a storyteller, and I can say this, well, let's see, every, afternoon, af- every Friday afternoon he bakes brownies from a recipe revealed to his ancestors in Mount Sinai. Whether that's true or not, I like it. With that, Rabbi Feinstein, the microphone is all yours. Thank you all for coming. These chairs move, right? Good. Good. So I'm going to move up over here, and you're going to turn your chairs like this way so we can be a little bit less like a classroom. Although I am a congregational rabbi, so if you close your eyes and fall asleep, I'll feel right at home. So you guys want to come a little closer. You can move and turn around. You can put your hands on the people next to you and get to know them. It's really good. All right, get around, get close, get close, you gotta get close, get close. There is a wonderful story of a rabbi who once asked his students, what's the most important moment in all of Jewish history? And the students gave answers that you might expect. One of the students said, the most important moment in Jewish history was when we crossed the Red Sea and we knew that God had liberated us from slavery. And another student said, no, the most important moment in Jewish history is the moment we stood at Mount Sinai and received the Torah. And another student said the most important moment in history was when Rabbi Akiba taught Torah. And another said it was when the Rambam taught, and the Rambam thought deeply about the presence of God in the world. And the rabbi listened to all of the answers, and he said to his students, they're all good answers, but they're not the right answer. The right answer is that the most important moment in all of Jewish history is right now. Because right now, we make a decision how all of those other moments will have a role in the world. Right now, we find a way to bring the wisdom and the inspiration and the power of all of those other moments to bear in the world, or we turn our backs altogether. So I intend to spend these three times with you together talking about right now. The Jewish condition right now. Because not only was the rabbi right that the Jewish condition right now is always the most important moment in history, but you happen to have chosen for your own experiences one of the most interesting, historically interesting, and culturally interesting moments in all of Jewish history to choose to live. This particular moment is so remarkable, so open to creativity, so filled with possibility, that I want to spend a couple of sessions with you talking about what it is. 
So today I want to introduce it. Tonight what we're going to do is talk about the collective Jewish experience, and tomorrow we're going to talk about the personal Jewish experience. And by the time you're finished, you're going to go home having been inspired, not just to feel depressed about the Jewish condition, which is usually the way we do it, but to be inspired to think that the Jewish condition has something within it that has real possibilities. By the way, being depressed and kvetching is an old Jewish sport. You know that. Right. It's very, very important. You know the story. There was a guy, and he has this massive heart attack in Boston, and they rush him to Mass General Hospital, and they save his life. And three days after they save his life, he checks out of Mass General, goes down the street, and checks into the little crummy Beth Israel Hospital. You know the story, right? No? And, the, and the, the people at Mass General, beside themselves, they rush down there to talk to the gentleman. It's Mr. Abramowitz. Was there something wrong with the medical care? He says, are you kidding? That's Harvard University. That's the greatest medical care in the world. Who could complain? Well, then perhaps there was something wrong with the nursing care. Are you kidding? They treat me like the, the sultan. I was like a king. I'm a king in the way they tell. What can you complain about? Perhaps the food or the hospitality was wrong. He says, what? It's like a five-star hotel down there. There's nothing to complain about. So why did you check out a mass general? Because there was nothing I could complain about. Here, the medical care is lousy, the nursings are terrible, and the food is awful. I feel at home. That's Jewish life. My Zayda used to read the Jewish papers, and he would read, he would look at the Jewish papers, and he'd shake his head, and he'd say, Schwertz is ein Yid. It's hard to be a Jew. And what happened is, unfortunately, and this is part of the problem, is that we've internalized that to become a prescription and not just a description. Like, if it's not Schwert, it's not really Jewish, you know? I once gave a lecture, and a lady said, I had such a good time, I forgot I was in synagogue. <laughs> you know? But, so I want to give you something to take home which is going to lift you up, because I think you've got enough schwer on your mind. So I want to bring a text. And this is a text which I think illuminates. I'll have a text for each of our talks. Um, this is a text which I think illuminates the current moment in Jewish history. So let me pass these out. What? You don't have enough. So take one. If you're sitting next to somebody that you're speaking to, pass one back and share. The Jewish condition that we are living under is best expressed by a very famous Jewish text called Fiddler on the Roof. You all know Fiddler on the Roof, right? Fiddler on the Roof is a story about a little village called Anatevka. Where is Anatevka? It's everywhere. <laughs> Somewhere, some unnamed, some anonymous village in Russia where all of our ancestors or most of our ancestors or some of our ancestors came from. And it's a story about what happens in that village when there's a moment in history called modernity. And modernity arrives. And that's what Anatevka is all about. Remember, so we, we meet Anatevka as we first show up. And Tevia, who is the teacher, who is the, the character, Tevia is a milkman with five daughters. And he says, you know, fiddler on the roof, 
Sounds crazy, but every one of us is like a fiddler on the roof trying to scratch out a little music for life without falling and breaking his neck. Right? Why do we stay here? Because this is where we live. And how do you keep our balance? How do you keep going in such a world? That I can tell you in one word. That was dreadful. <laughs> Let me try that again. That I can tell you in one word. Tradition. Beautiful tradition. We have traditions for everything, how to eat, how to sleep, even how to wear clothes. We all wear little tzitzis under our clothing. We wear a yarmulke, right? We all, and we have, we have traditions that govern every part of life. Every part of life. What is the definition of pre-modern culture? There is no such thing as a self, at least the way we understand it. Self is deeply embedded in community, in faith, in tradition, and in culture, which is to say that every decision of your life was made before you were born. If your father was a tailor, you'd end up as a tailor. And if your father was a butcher, you'd end up as a butcher. And if your father drove a cart, you'd end up driving a cart, unless, of course, you were a woman, in which case you were going to be a mother and a homemaker no matter what your aptitudes were. People were born, grew up, lived their whole lives, and died in a circle no bigger than 100 miles. And that's geographic and cultural. They were embedded in that tradition. And every decision was made for you. The script of your life was written before you were born. Why does one live in such a condition like this? Either you don't know better, or better than that, this gives you a sense of who you are and what God expects you to do. What God expects you to do. And that's how the play begins. And the first song of the play is here. And I need you all to help sing with me, right? Ready? <laughs> tradition, tradition. Bum, 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 tradition. I couldn't afford the orchestra, so you do this myself. Tradition, tradition. Bum, 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 bum. Gentlemen. I need all the gentlemen in the room now. All the men in the room ready? Or ladies with deep voices, ready? Who day and night must scramble for a living? Say his daily prayers. And who has the right as master of the house to have the final word at home? Ha! The papa, the papa, tradition. The papa, the papa, tradition. Bump, 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 bump. Ladies, ready? Who must know the way to make a proper home, a quiet home, a kosher home? Who must raise the family and run the home? So Papa's free to read the holy books. Bump, bump. The mama, the mama, tradition. The mama, the mama, tradition. Bump, 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 bump. Gentlemen, I need you again. Ready? At three, I started Hebrew school. At 10, I learned a trade. I hear they've picked a bride for me. I hope, bump, bump, she's pretty. The sun, the sun, tradition. The sun, the sun, tradition. Bump, 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 ladies. And who does my... Nice. To mend and tend and fix... Preparing me to marry whoever Papa picks. The daughter, the daughter, tradition. The daughter, the daughter, tradition. Bum, 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 bum. Now, now there's a round, but we're not going to do that because that's too crazy. 
What is the force of tradition? Every decision is made for you. Your life script was written before you were born, and your job is not to be an original, not to be unique. Your job is to conform to the expectation of the community. Every decision is made for you, including the most intimate decisions whom you're going to marry, which is really the drama of this play, because Tevia has five daughters. Now, in that world, there were three things that made a woman marriageable and attractive. Number one, she had, yeah, she had money. She had money. Every girl is beautiful. A girl with a half a million shares of Microsoft is ravishing, right? Okay? Number two, the second thing that made you marriageable? Yichus. Translate? Pedigree. Family background. If you're related to somebody. So in that community, learning is aristocracy. The, the highest grade match in the community is the rabbi's son. Ladies and gentlemen, I have two unmarried sons. <laughs> and I am willing to entertain some serious proposals while we're here. My daughter is engaged already. That one's finished. What? 27 and he has a job. And 21, just 2021, 20, and he just got a job. Right? Both. He got ex... You're looking for a granddaughter? Me too. I'm looking for grandchildren too, you know. All right, let's talk. So, yichis, money, and the third one is just whether you're an attractive girl. Now, Tevia's kids have no money because he's just a milkman. They have no yichis. They're related to nobody. And they're, you know, they're nice girls, let's say. They have nice personalities, right? Nice personalities. And the, the oldest of the daughters is Tzaitl. And Seidel, of course, is a little overripe. You know, she's 22 and not married yet. Oi, Vezmer. Gewalt, right? So the opening song is the girls are clean, and they're talking because you all wait, you wait for the matchmaker. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a fine, catch me a catch. You have to wait for the matchmaker to come and bring you a good match. That's how these things get done. And the matchmaker in the play is named Yente, which is Yiddish for a gossip. Because who knows more dirt about who people, you know, than Yent to the matchmaker. So into Tevye's homestead comes Yent to the matchmaker with good news. Golda Tevye, I have a match for your daughter Tzaitl. Who is it? Who's going to marry Tzaitl? The butcher laser wolf. Mazel tov. He's 60-something years old. He's as old as Tevye. He's a widower. He's an alcoholic. He's a drunk. He beats his wife. Right? He's crude and gross and horrible. Mazel tov. <coughs> There's one virtue to marrying the butcher. You will not starve. Your daughter will not starve. And Tevia is so taken with what a wonderful match with Laser Wolf that he goes to the local tavern and he has a celebration with the local Russian peasantry. To life, to life, lechayim, 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 to life. And he, after drinking the Strovia too many times, comes stumbling back into the homestead. There at the gate of the homestead stands Tzaitl. And she says, Papa, we have to talk. And he says, of course, Mazel Tov. And she says, Papa, I'm not going to marry the butcher. Whoa, Tevia is now sober. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean you're not going to marry the butcher? This is the match we've made for you. Girls had the right to refuse the match. Who are you going to marry? I'm going to marry 
The skinny, unaccomplished, orphaned tailor who had Tevia had brought in when he was a little boy because the kid was going to starve to death. So Tevia brought him in. They were raised as brother and sister. I'm going to marry Muttle Kemsoil. Tevia says, why would you give up a match with the rich laser wolf to marry this unaccomplished, starving tailor, Muttle Kemsoil? And then she pronounces the words which change all of Jewish history. Because I love him. To which she responds with the, he responds with the words of the great sage Tina Turner. <laughs> What's love got to do with it? <laughs> you don't marry for love. Love isn't something you marry. Maybe 25 years from now you'll love each other, but you marry because it's the right match. You don't marry for love. And she says to him, Papa, it's a different world. This is the beginning of a crisis. This is the beginning of a crisis that changes everything. Because in Seitel's decision to marry Muttel Kemsoil, there is born something in the world which had not yet existed in Jewish life, and it was just beginning to exist in Western culture, the choosing, independent, autonomous self. I will be whom I choose to be. I will not follow a script written for me by tradition or by culture. I will not subsume myself and my decisions to the authority of family or community or faith or God. I will be the person I choose to be. Choice is the preeminent element of modernity. Choice changes everything. Because now you cannot assume what somebody is going to be. They get to have the opportunity to choose. And choosing is what modernity is all about. We all get to make these choices that previous generations never got to make. Now, just to advance the story a little quicker, to go a little ahead of it, America becomes the world capital of choice. And the West Coast of America is the uber world capital of choice. Right? I mean, just think about this. Your father was a tailor. You don't have to be a tailor. You can be a lawyer. Your father was a butcher, you grew up to be a doctor. Your father was a doctor, you can grow up to be an actor, right? <laughs> you know, or a poet, you know, an artist. You don't have to choose the politics of your parents, the religion of your parents, the values of your... What do we do? We take our children, we raise them in nice, warm Jewish homes, we send them to Jewish schools, and then we send them to university. University, the word even tells you what it is. It's the universe of choices. And you, have, you give the kid complete and utter choice over who they're going to be. And the very first thing that happens in freshman year is that the university effectively washes clean all the values that we impressed in the child's mentality. And the kid comes home from winter break with a schmitzik in her nose <laughs> and green hair. And she says, Papa, I'm a vegan. I'm a Buddhist. And my name isn't Nessa Zisel anymore. But I have, still have a Jewish name, Papa. It's Whitefish, you know? <laughs> it's part of our Native American heritage. Whitefish, right? And I only eat, you know, I only eat beans and rice, and I, and I worship on the floor a god with a belly. I mean, give up. And you say to yourself, like, what happened? What happened was you send the kid to university where they get to re redo, the, you reboot the whole, the whole identity structure of the child. That's America. That's choice. That's modernity. That's the world you live in. Choice is what America is all about.
When we first moved to L.A., moved to L.A. about 20 years ago. We were living in Texas for 10 years. We moved back. I, I grew up here, and I moved away, and I came back. And one of the, I was driving down Santa Monica Boulevard in L.A., and I was struck. There's a huge billboard on Santa Monica Boulevard for a plastic surgeon. Well, I have nothing against plastic surgery, but I mean, a billboard epis, right? You know, pl think about pla plastic surgery is a wonderful thing, but cosmetic surgery, wonderful miracle. But think about this. This is choice. You don't even have to live with the tuchus you were born with. <laughs> you want it bigger, smaller, you want more, you want less, you want the face to look different, you want the hair to be... Remember the greatest commercial ever created for an American consumer product, and I'll prove to you how great this was. Clairol hair coloring. If I have only one life, let me live it as a... Because it's true that... That commercial has not been on television in 50 years. I'm, I swear to God, it has not been on TV for 50 years, and you all know it. If I have only one life, let me live it as I want to live it. Not with the hair color I was born with, but whatever hair color I want to have. That's America. That's choice. That's modernity. That's Seitel's revolution. That's what Seitel gave us. That's the first thing that changed everything. What happens to a religious tradition which expresses itself in commandments, in mitzvah? What happens to a religious com community which expresses itself in a sense of solidarity and mutual collective responsibility when the members of that community are taught from childhood, you think for yourself, you choose for yourself, you decide. How do you square those How do you square a, a religious tradition rooted in mitzvah, in obligation and responsibility, and a, a sense of the collective with the individual's right to choose at all moments, and to choose in and choose out, and the, the zealousness with which individuals are going to protect their freedom to choose, protect their options, protect their options. That's Seidel's revolution. Now, Seidel gets married. Remember the story? Seidel got married. Remember the wedding? And something had happened. Before Seidel got married, a young man came into the homestead. His name was Perchik. Perchik was a revolutionary. You remember that, that, that early 20th century Russia, Warsaw first, and then Russia had all of the revolutionary movements, communism, socialism, Bolshevism, right? Zionism, capitalism, all the isms. And Jews were at the head of all of these things. Perchik was a revolutionary who was running from the Tsar's police, and he hides in Anatevka. So Tevye takes him in, because Tevye takes everybody in. And Perchik is a revolutionary, and he teaches a different revolutionary ideal. Traditional Judaism said, live a pious life, and at the end of time, God will send Mashiach. God will send Messiah. Perchik says, why wait? Why should we wait for God to send Messiah? We should control the conditions of our own historical existence. That's classic communism, that's classic Zionism, and that's classic capitalism. Why wait for a world to come? Have it now. Have it now. Have all of the rewards of life now, and you control the conditions of your existence. You don't have to wait for a God. Control the conditions of your existence. Take control. So what happens at the wedding? The wedding is having a wonderful time, and then Perchik crosses the Mechitza, and he asks Hava to dance. Givald, the end of civilization as we know it. And everyone looks, and the rabbi steps up and says, no, you can't do this, this is wrong, this is wrong. And Tebius says, 
you know what? I like it. And he goes and asks Goldie to dance. And pretty soon everybody's dancing with everybody. And the world's changing. Remember, and then he, had, he has to go to Siberia, so she goes with him. And that's that very sad scene in the railway station. Makes everybody cry, right? Yeah, make you cry, right? And then there's the third daughter. The third element of modernity. The third daughter is, is I get a mixed up. Hu, hu, huddle. Huddle's the second one. Hava's the younger one. She loves books. And she's always got her, her nose in a book. And she goes to the library. Unfortunately, the library's attached to the church. And who does she meet in the library? A little Russian boy named Fietke. And they fall in love. We lived in insular communities in Eastern Europe. We only talked to Jews. If you only talk to Jews, you can say certain things. Once you open yourself to the outside world, it's very hard to maintain certain claims of truth. It's very hard to speak a certain language. Right? I have a very close friend when I was in high school named Bobby Kwan, Chinese fellow. And once he, used, he heard me use the phrase non-Jew. And he said, oh, that's who I am. <laughs> I have an identity. I'm a non-Jew. That's marvelous. There's one billion Chinese people and what, about 10 million Jews? But we're the non-Jews. Oh, I get it. I said, yeah, this is like, this is Jewish chutzpah, right? You know, right? There's, there's 14 million Jews in the world, but the other five and a half billion people, they're non-Jews, right? Azoi. In Israel, they do the same thing, you know? Israel's the size of Connecticut. But if you talk about Israel, it's Aretz, which means the land, and Chutz La'aretz, every place else. Like, you fault. I mean, it's with you people, right? You, there's certain things you can say in the family that you don't say when the family opens up. Certain truth claims. How do you maintain that you're the chosen people, the God of the universe, when everybody else says the same thing about themselves? And, and is that something you want to be saying? And what is the truth of the tradition? In what sense does the tradition make truth claims when science, both physical sciences and social sciences, come and challenge the core truth of a tradition? What happens when we open ourselves to outside influences and outside voices? And our culture now is completely permeable. I, I, heart, I would guess that if we went around the room, there isn't a family in this room that doesn't have somebody in the family who was not born Jewish. Right? My, my new son-in-law was not born Jewish. He's a very faithful Jew. But it's really interesting to have somebody at the table who was not born Jewish because he asks very different questions at the Seder than people who were born Jewish ask. Born Jews want to know, when do we eat? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Someone born Methodist wants to know, isn't this beautiful, right? I've, I've never done that, by the way. Invite Methodists to your Seder. It's a machaya. <laughs> Once we had a problem. We invited a guy who was Egyptian to the Seder. That was a problem. <laughs> and, uh, you get to that Midrash where Rabbi Akiba says it wasn't 10 plagues, it was 250 plagues. You know? And this guy said, you people got some problems, you know? <laughs> You people haven't gotten over this yet, have you? No, it, it takes a long time. <laughs> says, says, but you're welcome to stay here, but, you know, but, but watch where you put your fork. <laughs> it, it, it's just, it's, what happens when you open, this is modernity. Modernity is the choosing self, a sense that history is in our hands to shape and the rewards of history must be available to us now and everything must be done in an open environment, in an environment of open conversation with the outside world. Fiddler on the Roof is not about tradition. That's what made the play so popular. It's about everything in the world that comes to destroy tradition. 
And the question at the end of Fiddler on the Roof, if you're a student of Jewish history, is what's left after Seitel, Huddle, and Hava? How do you go on being Jewish now? And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the question we've gathered this week to answer. How do you do it now? How do you, by the way, it's not just Jewish. As you know that this is a universal phenomenon. Theo Bekel lives in my neighborhood. He's a very sweet man. You all know Theo Bekel, the great actor. He's a lovely, lovely man. So he told us a story once. He said he was in Japan on tour. And he sees in the hotel a handbill for Fiddler on the Roof in Japanese. And he says, I have to see this. I have to see this. So they get him tickets. And he goes, and he says, I don't speak a word of Japanese. I know the whole play by heart. It was marvelous. He says, afterwards, he asks his host, can I meet the guy that played Tevye? They say, sure. So they take him backstage, and he goes and meets the guy in his dressing room, and he says, you know, I played Tevye on Broadway for years. You're wonderful. And the guy looks at him funny. He says, I don't know. The guy, the Japanese actor says, it's hard to imagine a guy like you playing Tevye. <laughs> he says, why? He says, because the role is so Japanese. Because Japan had the same issue of what happens when a traditionally bound culture crashes into modernity. It's the same issue. What's left of being Japanese when you live in a global culture and your children listen to Madonna, right? Or Lady Gaga, you know? What's left of being Japanese when children choose the culture? They don't, they don't accept the culture that they're born into. What's left of being, what's left of tradition? That's the great question. Here's the bigger context of this question. There are two ways, I think, to read the story of the Jewish people, to read the story of Judaism. Most of the time when we read the Jewish story, we read it as a story of continuity, of tradition, of truths and values and insights handed down from generation to generation, faithfully through the thousands of, through the thousands of years, through the millennia. And we like to see ourselves as the heirs to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to Moses and Aaron, to Isaiah and Yermiao, to Hillel and Shammai, to, to Akiba and his colleagues, to, to the Rambam, to the Besht, to Theodore Herzl. We want to see ourselves as part of a, of a solid chain of tradition, of values and insights and wisdom handed down. And there is a comfort and a sense of authenticity and a sense of place in the world that comes from saying, I practice a faith, I am part of a tradition, I am, I'm a member of a culture that is thousands of years old and it is my role to continue it forward. That's the continuity story. And if you tell the story of Jewish continuity, you understand that your role as a Jew and your role as a leader in the community is to accept what you got from the past and pass it faithfully to the future. And that's a sacred role. It's transmission, not invention, not creativity, not originality, but faithful transmission. That's the leader's role in the, in the story of continuity. I want to submit that that story's true, but there's another story. Like all good Jewish things, there's another hand. And on the other hand, there's the story of discontinuity. Jewish discontinuity means that at certain key moments in the experience of the Jewish people, events within the heart of the Jewish people and events from outside forced us to reinvent the Jewish project. They forced us to rethink the values of this people. They forced us to reimagine the institutions of the community. They forced us to reinvent the whole project of what it means to be a Jew. And at these moments of discontinuity, 
those who remain faithful to simply carrying on what came before would have killed us. It's the courageous leaders who said, I want to carry on what was before, but I want to do it in a new way, in a new form, in a new manner, with new expressions, with new tools, with new institutions. It's how do you protect the old, but doing it with the new. And that kind of leadership is a very courageous and difficult act because you never know what it is that you're holding on to if it's, a, if it's live or if it's dead. If it's a, is, it a, is it a pathway to a future or is it a dead end? You have to wait 300 years to find out. So come back in 300 years and we'll do this again and I'll tell you whether it works. And here's my, here's my proposition. We are living through one of the greatest moments of Jewish discontinuity in the history of the Jewish people. And modernity is the name of this discontinuity. Now, the greatest moment of discontinuity in all of Jewish history was the moment in the year 70, 70, when the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed. The Romans got tired of governing Judea because Jews then, not now, were revolting. And the Romans <laughs> landed the 10th legion in Phoenicia and they marched down the coast and then up into the hills and they encircled the city of Jerusalem and they were so angry at Jews that they smashed the city and destroyed the holy temple. Very uncharacteristic for Romans, by the way. But they did this because they want to make an example of Judea. At that moment, everything that tied us to our past, that held us to our traditions, everything that expressed who we were in the world was lost. It was absolutely lost. The temple, its priests, its sacrifices, its courts, its academies, gone. Now, what do you do in the face of that kind of a holocaust? There were some Jews, I'm sure, who became Romans. They said, look, the gods of Rome are stronger than the gods of Israel, become Romans. And they assimilated and became Romans. There are a few Jews followed a northern Palestinian, northern Galilee preacher named Joshua. And they said, listen, you had the Messiah, you killed him, this is the punishment, follow us. They called themselves Christians. They've done real well. I don't know if you've heard of them. There were a few Jews, however, who didn't want to do either one of those two things. They wanted something else. They wanted to find a new way to do Judaism. And so they went to the last surviving teacher, the last samurai, <laughs> the last surviving Jedi, whose name was Yohanan ben Zakkai, who had made a separate peace with the Romans and snuck out and started an academy. And they went to Yohanan ben Zakkai in Yavne, and they asked him in good Palestinian Aramaic, Vigatzt. <laughs> Translation, where do we go now? <laughs> what do we do now? And, and Yochanan had, had, had a dilemma on his hands because had he said to them, don't worry, the temple's going to be restored, the sacrifices will be restored, God will love us again, we would have died as a people because the temple wasn't going to be restored and the priests were not going to be restored and the Romans were not going to suddenly turn compassionate. And so what he had to do is invent a new Judaism out of the materials that were there before but under these circumstances, a new Judaism. And I know what he said, because he left us some notes. He left us a book of his notes. It's really interesting. Notes on how to survive moments of discontinuity. Notes on how to recreate a community in the face of Holocaust and tragedy. And the notes are called Pirkei Avot. It's the only section of the Mishnah which has no law in it. And the third one goes like this. He quoted his teacher's 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 teacher, Shimon Atzadik. And you know this, you all know this by heart. That's why I didn't print it for you. Al shloshat varim ha'olam omed. Ala Torah, 
On three things the world stands. On Torah, on worship, and gemilut chesed, acts of kindness. Translation. The world still stands. That's a hell of a statement. The world still stands. First of all, first of all, they saw the temple destroyed. They saw Jerusalem flattened. They had every right to believe that their world didn't stand anymore. More than that, the temple, the temple was the place of God. In the middle of the holy temple of Jerusalem was a room called Kodesh HaKodeshim, the holy of holies, the inner sanctum. God lived in that room. Nobody went into that room except one guy once a year for five minutes. The high priest went in there on Yom Kippur to ask for blessings. He spent a month in meditation so that he would keep his thoughts concentrated on nothing but the plight of his people. He prepared himself. He wore white gowns. He walked into that room. And just in case, just in case he should drop dead during the ritual, they tied a rope around his leg. It's like a schlep the poor schnook out. That's how much God lived in that room. And that room was gone. That temple was destroyed. It was desecrated by the Romans. By the way, we face that place when we pray. That place is usually in the east. When you face something in the east, you are oriented. You are oriented. You have an orientation. Orient east. Oriented. When you lose that place, you are literally disoriented. Get it? <laughs> more than that, one more piece of it. That holy temple stood on a piece of limestone, a rock. It was called Evan Hashtia, the foundation stone of the universe. Same rock Abraham tried to sacrifice Isaac. Foundation stone of the universe. When the Jews of Jerusalem saw the temple explode, and it exploded because it was made out of limestone, and the Romans set fires under it, so it blew up. They thought the rock itself blew up. So for them, the world was literally knocked off its axis. The rock wasn't blown up, by the way. Today, it's under that very attractive golden dome. Have you seen it? Right? You know, it's a very attractive golden dome. Called the Dome of the... Zoe. See, now you know. Right? So they go to Yochanan. They say, what are we going to do? The world's spinning out of control. He said, no, it's not. You didn't lose your world. You didn't lose God. You just lost a building in Jerusalem. You just lost a building in Jerusalem. And God hasn't abandoned you. And God doesn't hate you. And God has not left the world. You just lost a building. The world's fine. The world's safe. But no longer priests, sacrifices, temple, city, sovereignty. Now, Torah, Avodah, Gimilut Chasadim. Torah, wherever Jews learn, that's where God lives with us. What's the institution where you learn Torah? The Beit Midrash, the school. The school. By the way, there's no word in Hebrew that means what we Americans call school. There's no, because there was never an institution in the Jewish community where only kids hung out. Beit Midrash, we use the word Beit Sefer, which means library, you know. Beit Midrash was a place where grown-ups were always there. There were grown-ups there early in the morning, there were grown-ups there in the afternoon, and kids were there in the middle of the day. Right? It was a place where the whole community came to learn Torah. CSP is a Beit Midrash. Right? It's a Beit Midrash. It's a place where grown-ups come to learn Torah. Right? A Beit Midrash. Now, you can build a Beit Midrash in Orange County. Not because God lives in Orange County, although there are some people who think that he does, right? <laughs> okay? 
but because anywhere Jews gather to learn Torah, God shows up. Second, worship, which is now going to be not sacrifice, but verbal prayer. What do you call the place you do prayer? A synagogue, Beit Knesset. That's the second institution. Third, gimilut chesed, acts of kindness. Where do you learn those? At home. The Bible has very little to say about your home. It's the Talmud that made home a sacred place. It's the Talmud that enshrined the Jewish home as a holy, as a holy of holies. Right? So the Jewish home, the school, and the synagogue now become the new trinity of institutions that are going to carry Judaism into a future. Into a future. Now, what the rabbis did was they took all of the symbols of the temple that they could salvage and they put them in those places. Right? When you stand at your Shabbos table, you become the priest. The table's your altar. What do you call that twisted egg bread on the middle of your table? In Orange County, they call it egg bread, right? <laughs> but you all call it what? Challah is the name of a sacrifice. Before you can eat... No, that's on Christmas. Before you can eat... Before you can eat the challah, what do you need to do? You see, after you say Kiddush, before you make motzi, you wash your hands. And you say a bracha, al Where in the Torah are you commanded to wash your hands? Answer, you're not. Question, who is? Answer, the priest. You become the priest. And then you take this cinnamon chocolate chip challah, which costs you $7 at the artisan bakery. And before you eat it, what do you do? You put salt all over it. Now, is that because Jews' blood pressure is too low? <laughs> yeah. No, because every sacrifice was offered with salt. The challah is a sacrificial offering. The table is your altar. You become the priest. This is the place of the Holy of Holies now, where a family sits about a table to share stories of gimilut chesed. This is what I mean by discontinuity. The rabbis of that generation knew that if they offered what was before, we would die as a people. They had to create a Judaism based on rituals and symbols and ideas that were old, but had never been advanced to the, to the, to the front. Now, if the Temple of Jerusalem's destruction in the year 70 was the greatest moment of destruction in the whole history of the Jewish people, the Holocaust is a close second. And I would say that the greatest moment of redemption in all of Jewish history has to be the exodus from Egypt. The recreation of the state of Israel is a close second. Except the, the, the exodus from Egypt and the destruction of the temple were two and a half thousand, two thousand years apart. We experience both of these moments, Shoah and, the, and Yom Ma'ud, in the same generation. That's why they're, but they're the same week, by the way, on the Jewish calendar, right? A week apart. They did that on purpose. You understand the headache of Jewish modernity. And this tells us a lot. Here's what happened. Modernity, we crashed into modernity. If you're a Jew living in England or France, you crashed into modernity in 1789. If you're a Jew living in Germany, you crashed into modernity in 1830. If you're a Jew living in, in, in Russia or Poland, you never crashed into modernity until you got on a boat and came to America and you crashed into modernity on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. We crashed into modernity. Individual autonomy, the rewards of life in this lifetime, now and the sense of openness. And we started to do it. We started to do the job of rebuilding, of recreating Judaism in the way that Jews have done in every moment of discontinuity. This remarkable resilience to reinvent. We started doing it. And then came these two traumas. Holocaust and the creation of Israel. And at the end of the Holocaust, the creation of Israel, we were numb. We couldn't figure out what the heck to do. 
how do you go forward now? So here's what I propose. I propose that from 1945 to 1990, the process stopped. It stopped. We built a lot of stuff. We were good at building stuff. We built synagogues and seminaries and summer camps, and we built Israel. But we stopped the process of reinventing what it means to be a Jew. And I'll tell you how I know this, because at that moment, certain questions were not allowed. After the war, you couldn't ask the question, why am I Jewish? That was a given. The answer was, why are you Jewish? Because Hitler tried to kill us. I remember this in my own family. In my own family. I have a brother named Larry. I'm the good son. He's the wicked son. No, my, my wife is here. She'll testify. Every Yontif, Larry and I shared a bedroom. Every Rosh Hashanah, same story. From the time we were four, mom comes in our bedroom, 7 o'clock, Rosh Hashanah morning, said, boys, get up, we're going to shul. Your father's going to walk to shul. I got up, I put on my clothes, I had my breakfast, I get ready to go. My brother says, I'm not going. I'm not going. I hate synagogue. It's boring. I don't like these holidays. I'm not going. My mother would trot out every argument. The whole community is going to be there. We're there as a family. It's a very special day. You don't go to shul that much anyway. You know, it's not that long. The rabbi will have a new sermon. You know. I'm not going. I'm not. And then finally she would drop the Shoah bomb. She would lower her eyes and lower her voice and say, my family died at Auschwitz and you won't go to shul? And he said, okay, I'll go, but I'm not wearing a tie. And he went, he went every year until he was 17. And I remember, remember I was there that week. My mother came in, she said, boys, get up, time to go to shul, your father's ready to go. Get up, I got dressed. My brother's, I'm not going. Oh, Larry, cut it out, you know what's gonna happen. I'm not going, I'm not going, I'm not going. Fine, fine, fine. Mom comes in, gives him all the arguments, then she drops the bomb. My family died in Auschwitz and you're not going. And my brother turned to my mother and said, your family died in Auschwitz? Even better reason not to go. Who could worship such a God? It stopped working. It stopped working. The Shoah no longer motivated Jewish affiliation. It became an obstacle to Jewish affiliation. It stopped working. And somehow, somehow, in about 1985, 1990, something amazing happened. The community woke up, or at least a new generation arrived and woke up, and they said, you know what? It's not an excuse anymore. We have to go back and rebuild the institutions and the ideology of the community. We have to, and, and a, a question started being asked in the late 80s and 90s that hadn't been asked for 40 years. Why be Jewish? Why affiliate with this people? Why practice this faith? Why and, and, and embrace this culture? What does it do for us? What good is it? How can we do it in a way that fits us? People stopped accepting what was simply because it was out of guilt, and they started wanting something better. That's the moment that the process of creativity that is motivated by the discontinuity, that's the moment it kicked in again. And that's where we are today. We are smack in the middle of that process. So this I can tell you. There is a very good chance your children and grandchildren will actually be Jews. But the kind of Jews they are will look nothing like the kind of Jew you are or your ancestors were. What's, what's, what are they going to need to have in order to be Jews of this new moment of Jewish history? That's the question we're going to spend some time talking about. What is it within the ancient Jewish tradition that can be carried forward? How do we understand the project and meaning of Jewish existence as a collective 
And what does Jewish existence say to my own personal quest for a meaningful life as an individual? Those are the two questions I want to answer in the conversations we're about to have. Okay? That was an introduction. Now we'll begin the talk. So, as I said at the beginning, the most important moment in Jewish history is right now, and you happen to, and you be, you're citizens of the right now, and that's what we're here to discuss. So let's take a moment. We have about five minutes, and then I, I promised Ari I would follow, follow the schedule. Anyone have questions, comments, counter sermons? Yeah. Very, very nice question. So um, if, if you're a, a you know, certain Jew, every, every kind of Jew interprets this thing a little bit differently. So first, I'm not an Orthodox rabbi. You probably could notice that, right? <laughs> I'm wearing blue, not black, right? I have a lot of friends and family who are, okay? Here's what's interesting about Orthodoxy, and I, I mean this in a deeply respectful, loving way. They are among the most revolutionary among us, but they have mastered an ancient Jewish art of masking their revolutionary moves in traditional garb. And I mean that literally and figuratively, right? There is nobody more creative, more interesting, and more radical than Chabad, except they wear a costume of tradition, which isn't really tradition. It's 16th century Polish aristocracy, but that's another story. And, and they, and they, they, and they, they, they speak a, a an idiom which sounds traditional, but it really isn't if you stop and think about what they just said. And that's what's so interesting. So my Orthodox friends would say to you in a moment of reflection, of course we're making changes, but we have to do them very carefully, and we have to make sure that they're cloaked, literally, in, in, the, in, in the symbols of tradition, and we have to make sure that they're, con they're continuous with what came before. And here the question is, how continuous do you need to be in a moment of discontinuity? And how faithful are you to forms and traditions that may not fit this moment of life. And th this is where we have big, interesting debates. Now, I'm going to assume the following in answering your question, which is such a lovely question. I'm going to assume a, a very, very open, honest, rational, humane orthodoxy, okay, which is what I think is the best of orthodoxy. And I think that there are many, many rabbis and teachers and scholars who practice that kind of orthodoxy. There's other kinds of orthodoxy, which is not as open and not as humane and not as rational and won't talk to us. And that kind of orthodoxy I can't talk about. I mean, they, they don't want anything to do with us, and they have a different vision of the world, right? But there, I, I've met in my world just the most wonderful, you know, open, honest, rational conversa you know, conversations with my orthodox colleagues and friends. And David Hartman is one of my teachers. And David Hartman is, I think, one of the great orthodox teachers of the generation. So is Yitz Greenberg, who's another one of my teachers. And these are deeply orthodox guys. So, yeah, I mean, next year, get an Orthodox guy in here. He'll have a different story to tell you. <laughs> but I think in the end, I think you're going to discover that he also is struggling with discontinuity. You know, he just does it in a slightly different manner than I will. Okay, I gave you a, a text on the other side. We're, we're going to finish with two texts. Not yet, not yet, but we'll take a look at it in a minute. Yeah, please. Can we, can we open a window or a door or requisition some oxygen in here? I'm sorry, it's just... Cold, hot, you're going to complain, so let's at least be comfortable while we complain, you know. Let's fetch, yeah. You got to fetch. Yeah. 70. 70. Seven zero. 
Right. Okay. Where did that come from? Right. Because, I mean, those are, and how did we know, where did it come from? How did we know it was the right thing to, to follow? <sighs> Given all of the destruction. Yeah. Okay. What, what, what told us, trust that guy? Yeah. Well, in some ways, yes. And the second way, he was an important guy before. And third, because this was stuff that had been, that had been lying latent within the practice of Judaism up to that point. There was a synagogue in the Beit HaMikdash. There were people learning Torah for the last thousand years since Ezra. I mean, there, this stuff was there, right? This stuff was there. But to have advanced it from the background to the foreground to have changed the orientation from temple-oriented Judaism to Torah-oriented Judaism was a really gutsy thing to do. It's a really gutsy thing to do. As I said before, you're going to have, you're going to have initiatives that are going to offer us interpretations of the Jewish future. And I can't tell you which ones are paths to life and which ones are dead ends. You have to wait 300 years. I mean, I, I know that sounds like silly. Yet there's a certain kind of intuition and faithfulness and experimentation that you engage in in order to try to figure out. You know, in the last 10, 15 years, the community, your community, for example, you know, invested millions, tens of millions in day school education. Is day school education going to save us? I don't know. Come back in 300 years, I'll tell you, right? We invested millions in the state of Israel, which also, by the way, is an innovation, but get to that later. I mean, is that the way? Is that the way of Jewish life? I mean, it's, it's really hard to tell. I'm, I'm, I'm being honest with you. I wish I could say, oh, there's a program or a voice from heaven told me. Right? But, and I'll show you in a moment how the rabbis of the Talmud dealt with it. That's going to be the source we finish with today. But the message was not, this is a message from God. No. The message was, this is, this is the best we've got right now. Well, I'm not so sure. It's a question of how you, I think the latter is really what it was. Now, the question is how you phrase it. In a certain way, it was a message from God. This is the way to act as a faithful Jew in this moment of history. Right? The question is really an interesting question. How does one act as a faithful Jew in the shadow of the Holocaust? You know, and if you wait for a message from God, are you going to hear it? Are you going to like what you hear? I mean, so this is really an interesting question. It's the same question you and I ask. Where should I put my efforts, my money, my energies, my creativity? In what direction of Jewish life should I go? Okay, and, and that's a really very interesting question. I'm, I'm going to suggest that you're, I'm not going to answer it now. I'll try to answer it during the course of the talks, but I'm going to suggest that the question is no different than what you and I struggle with all the time when we struggle with the leadership of a community. I run a big synagogue. How should I do it? Should I continue the ways of my ancestors or should I do something really new? Right? When I do something new, people yell at me. You know, they say, we want something new in the shul, but don't change a don't alum. <laughs> That's called Jewish innovation, right? Right? You know, so, I mean, it's a really interesting kind of question. So it really, what, where, what, 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 how do you choose what's new that has a future? A really great question. I don't have a simple answer for you. Yes, please. I grew up reform, so we're talking 75, 80 years ago. And at that time, I understood reform Judaism was the innovation being follow actually Gemilut Chasadim, the right. role of the prophet rather than the strict uh, former orthodox right. uh, laws. Right. What temple did and, you grow up in? Well, all over the all United over. States. Okay. Uh, seriously, yeah, all over. Um, 
But now, and it's not just at our reform congregation, they're going back to the Talit, to the uh, Kippah, to uh, kosher, to uh, My no God. Torah Friday night. <laughs> to no Torah Friday The degradation of reform. <laughs> Isn't it interesting, though? First of all, you have to at least sit back and say, Oy vey, isn't this interesting? My father went to a bar mitzvah at the Wilshire Boulevard Temple in L.A. And my father, who is a nice Jew, walked in with a yarmulke. And the usher said, sir, you have to take that off in the temple. And he said, I'm not taking off my yarmulke. And the judge said, we don't wear those here. And he says, look, I didn't bring my film. I brought my yarmulke. I mean, but now you walk into a reformed temple, right? And the rabbi, you know, has a yarmulke and a talis, right? So I'm asking, and I thought it was just our congregation. No, no, no. It's, 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 a, it's a widespread disease, right? Since then, that it is all, or So Mrs. Brower, right? So Mrs. here's the interesting thing. What we've discovered in the last 10 years or so is that one of the things that gives Judaism power in this moment is not just relevance, that it speaks to the moment, but also something called authenticity. That I want my, I want my faith to reflect something authentic. It's an authentic connection with the past, an authentic voice that's older than me. And that's why places, reform temples, for example, and it's driven largely by younger rabbis. And a lot by that guy, Larry Hoffman, who you're bringing in for your family weekend. Uh, a lot of younger rabbis are looking for something authentic in the practice of Judaism, and therefore they're not willing to give up um, and push away so many of the practices that their ancestors in the reform movement were willing to do. Okay? And so that creates a really interesting dynamic. Because what, what's happened as well is that the, the, the past generation, we're getting too detailed here, but the past generation, the one that you grew up with, were rabbis who were really taken with modernity and the world of science. This generation's grown up in which science is not the answer to every human question. So there is a sense in which tradition has answers to questions that science can't answer. And now you have this move backwards to a traditional life in the reform movement. Well, I mean, I'm just using that as a metaphor, but that, maybe that's not the right move. It should be a move forward. Yes, Mrs. Fromm. Oh, have you have you have you degenerated? My God! Right. He's my boss now. You know that, so I, I have to say nice things about him. Right? I know he was my friend back then. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I suggest to you that the window or a door opened, you know, 200 years ago when we crashed into modernity, or 100 years ago if you're like me, an Eastern European, and that it, it froze for 45 years, for 40 years in the middle of the 20th century, and now beginning in the late 80s, early 90s, it has opened up again, and now there's this very active process of reinvention going on all around us, and what Mrs. Brower is talking about is part of that. Yes. So, what do you think? 
window or the door will close and what will happen? I, I don't think... Yeah, it is, but I don't think that's the metaphor. You see, I don't think that it's like, you got to do this now. I mean, I was raising money from you, I would say, you know. <laughs> Give a lot of money to CSP or else, you know. There, I owe you now. <laughs> no, but it's not that. It's that it's going on all around us. And if you want to be part of it, you have, a, you have a role to play in being part of this. And I want you to know what the role is. And I want you to be able to stand above the process and see it from a, from a vast landscape. Too often we sit within the process and we say, oy vey, nothing's the same as it used to be. Nothing's the way it was before. Nothing's authentic. Nothing is, uh, is traditional. And we get anxious about it. And I want you to not have that anxiety, but rather to have the excitement of watching creativity happen all around you. So what I want you to do is to be an active participant in this process. And that's really what I think, that, that is why I came today to not fetch, but to try to inspire you to be an active participant in the process of the reinvention of Jewish, Jewish life in our time and to see how this fits into a broad historical pattern. This is a broad historical pattern because what I'm going to tell you, I'm a congregational rabbi and I learned a long time ago, the way you get an audience to pay attention is give them the last line of the sermon first because they might be asleep by the end, right? So here's the last line of the sermon. The last line of the sermon is, I really believe in the resilience of this people. I really believe in the creative power of this people because I believe that God isn't finished with us yet. And so what we're seeing is part of what I think is an ongoing process that has happened again and again and again in Jewish history of the capacity of this people to reinvent itself for a new historical moment. And that's what's going on around us. And it's breathtaking to behold it. And it's fun to celebrate it. And it's joy to join it and to be part of it, and you all have a role to play in it. It's not just, by the way, and I want to say this you know, with some prejudice, it's not just for the young. You're all young enough to be part of this, every one of you. You don't have to be 25 years old to be creative and visionary. And, you know, Abraham was 75 years old when he started his process as a Jew, right? That means all of you are just getting ready, right? Right? AARP keeps sending me things in the mail, right? So I'm, I, but I want you to feel that you have a role and a voice to play in this process. Clive, did you want to say that? That's very nice. That's very nice. Let's take three more questions. Yeah, I want to. I got more Go to teach. Go to this side of the room over here. Yes, Heather. So, Welcome. <laughs> How do you communicate these concepts and this window of opportunity? Your children are slightly older than mine. I yes. have teenagers. Cool. So you know, if you tell them something, they'll do the opposite. Yeah. And what I've always said to them. Don't is, go to shul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
why do I have to go to Disney school? Why do I have to? And it's like, because this is who you are, yeah. and it's there for you when you need it, yeah. when you want it. That's nicely, that's good. That's true. Give me more. Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> it's really hard. We can spend some time during the weekend. I'll give you some more. But one of the things you need to know is that uh, teenagers, there's a special fund. Um, I think it's located in a bank in Geneva <laughs> that sends money to teenagers, and their job in the world is to piss off their mother. <laughs> Whatever you tell them, they're going to find a way to piss you off. Yeah. Whatever you say yes, they're going to say no. Whenever you say this is the limit, they're going to say, how come I am the only one in there? <laughs> right. So you have to understand that the kid who says, I don't want to go to Hebrew school, says that to you because that's where they get a check at the end of the month to do that. And, but really, when they get to Hebrew school, they're damn glad they're there because their friends are there because they like the teacher because they have a ball there. And as soon as, as soon as Hebrew school is over, so Hebrew school finishes around what time? Six o'clock? Six. So at five of six, they all have a drill at Hebrew school. So, okay, take off your fun face. Put on your angry, I couldn't stand it today face. Ready? Okay, everybody outside, go. Tell mom how much you hated it. They do this. I'm telling you, I've watched. <laughs> Because if you, literally, if you were to say to the kid, okay, you can't go anymore, they would argue with you, right? Tr trust me, they would. Because there is something, there is a connection that, that means I... What do you say? They're, they're in the window. Yeah, part of it, that's part. I'm, I'm giving you a hard time. So part of it is don't, don't overestimate their resistance. That's number one. Their, their resistance is part of a broader pattern of adolescent character formation. And they're going to resist you on everything. Just, just, you have girls or boys? Good luck. Yeah. Right. So that's number one. Number two is, number two is you got to make sure, and I don't know how active you are in the show, but you got to make sure that the Hebrew school experience is really engaging. And you got to go in there and fight like hell. And if it's not, kick some, go talk to people and make sure it's engaging. Make sure the temple's engaging. Um, sometimes he, school is the problem. And the more that the school experience resembles a youth club and the less it resembles a school, the more engaging it is. When we were kids, Nina, my wife is here, and we, we met in camp. Summer camp was our thing. We went to Ramah's kids. You know, now, I, I mean, you know, I, I was not a davener, but Ramah was where I davened. You know, I learned how to pray. You know, so camp is another experience. Israel is another experience. You have to find other experiences to sort of supplement that experience. So you have to create a constellation of experiences around your kids that are all engaging experiences. And sometimes school is the least of them. Camp is engaging. Israel is engaging. Right, family stuff is engaging. There's a lot of stuff that you can do. So we can talk, but you're, you're, the right the question's the right question. Don't under over don't un, don't overestimate the resistance. Your kids are in, in the in the flow of this thing. You know. And then, then then there's the kid. And so I'll tell you the story. I've been congregational rabbi 30 years now. I mean, there are kids who were utter screw ups in my Hebrew school. I mean, crash and burn screw ups. Like, spend your whole Hebrew school in the principal's office, and we schlepped him through his bar mitzvah by the skin of his teeth. And I said to myself, this is a anti-Semite, if there ever was one. This, is a, this kid is, has no Jewish future. And I get a call from his mother. He's the president of Hillel on the campus. He's going to, I, I met him at the APAC conference, right? The student leader for Israel advocacy in APAC. I said, what the, I used language with children that I don't use with you. What are you doing here? And he said, this is the coolest thing in the world. God, am I proud to be Jewish. And I said, who the hell taught you that? You did. I said, really? You were listening? He said, yeah, far out. You know, I, I got to tell you, it's weird raising kids. I mean, it's, it's just, but, so don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Yeah, yeah. I just have to make a comment. Please. I have three of my four sons. Yeah. And my daughter-in-law is not Jewish. And she 
courageous enough to say, I gotta ask you all a question. Uh -huh. I have to know what makes you you. Good question. Yeah. Damn good, good question. Two hours. Good. And uh, Bless you. Uh, I'll give you my book. It's even better. I know Charlie. I know Charlie was my classmate. All right, so I want to do one quick thing because Ari wants to finish. And I know you got questions, but I'm here the whole day. I'll be eating with you. I'll be at the gym. I'll be walking around on a beach. Noah and I are going hang gliding in a few minutes. Um, you know how you say hang gliding? In, you know how you say hang gliding in, in Yiddish, by the way? Hilaria. You know, never mind. That's a joke. Um, Hilaria is a crazy person. All right. Meshugana, yeah. Um, the other song, late in the second act of Fiddler, there is a moment of truth. It's after all three of the daughters go their way. And Tevia and Goldie are packing because they're leaving Anatevka for wherever the world is going to take them. And uh, America, right. And he turns to her and he asks her something which is so beautiful and poignant. And it really is the last word of this conversation. So take a look on the right-hand side of the page. Ready? Gentlemen, can I ask all of you to share with me the part of Tevia? And ladies, you're going to sing the part of Goldie. All right, ready? Goldie, do you love me? Do I not? Do you love me? With our daughters getting married and this trouble in the town, you're upset, you're worn out, go inside, go lie down. Maybe it's indigestion. Goldie, I'm asking you a question. Now stop a second. What's going on? She doesn't understand the question. She never got it. She doesn't understand this new world you live in. She lives in the world of the tradition. In the world of tradition, do you love me is not a question. In the world of tradition, you're married to fulfill your obligation to God and the community and your future. In the world of tradition, there was no choosing self to engage in such a conversation. In the world of tradition, you did what was asked of you. He, however, knows that the world has changed and there's something else he wants to know. Something deeper, something more intimate, something more personal. She just doesn't get it. So he says, Goldie. I'm asking you a question together. Gentlemen, do you love me? You're a fool. I know. But do you love me? Do I love you? For 25 years I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked the cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? So she says, I did what was asked of me. I fulfilled my responsibility. I fulfilled my obligation. I met my part of the partnership. I gave you children. I milked the cow. I cooked your meals. I kept the house. I did what a wife is expected to do. Why are you asking me this question? She doesn't get it. She doesn't get it. But now he's going to try to show her there's something else. There's something new here. So he says, Goldie, gentlemen, the first time I met you was on our wedding day. I was scared. I was 
I was nervous. But my father and my mother said we learned to love each other. So now I'm asking Goldie, do you love me? I know. But do you love me? Do I love him? For 25 years I've lived with him, fought with him, star. 25 years my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? Then you love me. And I suppose I love you two together. It doesn't change a thing, but even so, after 25 years, it's nice to know. Now don't, don't go away yet. Wait, wait, wait. That was a very powerful statement. She says, he says to her, remember when we got married? We were scared kids. We didn't know anything. Now we know everything about life. And in this new world, I want to know if you would love me, if you would marry me in this world, in the world of, of love, in the world of bonding and intimacy and affection. If you had to make the choice, Goldie, would you choose me? And he's asking his grandchildren, if you had to make the choice, would you choose to be Jewish? In a world where personal choice is the determinant of destiny, not how you were born, not where you were born, not the family you were born into, not any kind of ascribed identity. You have to choose. If you were given the choice, would you choose in? Would you choose in? And she says, do I love him? So 25 years I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. 25 years my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? I've been loyal. Doesn't that tell you how I feel? Haven't I shown you how I feel? Right? And he says, then you love me. You would choose. And she said, yeah, I suppose I do. And he says, I suppose I love you too. It doesn't change a thing. Oh, no. It changes everything. But even so, after 25 years, it's nice to know. The world can change. And the world can move from these ascribed roles to questions of deep intimacy and personal meaning. And still at the end, we still love each other. We are still one people. We are still possessed of a great wisdom and a great truth, and we still love it, right? You might want to rephrase the song and say, after 3,500 years, right? After 3,500 years, for 3,500 years, I've lived with, we've lived together, we've fought together, we've starved together. For 3,500 years, we've shared every experience. If that's not love, what is? And maybe that doesn't change a thing, but it changes everything. This song says that in this new world, it is still possible. There still is something very, very deep that we need to embrace. So thanks so much, and we'll discover this together. <laughs>